Is confounder a charge to profile? Mere Rashmi Jigisha Tam, Mere Rashmi Jigisha 
And Krishna's talked about secret things earlier, Rajavidya, Rajaguyam. This is the most secret thing, the most confidential thing. And you can find God in the silence. So that's a, a, a concept that's understood throughout many spiritual traditions and many religions, isn't it? That if you want to find God, you want to connect with the spiritual, you need to be silent. We have in the Bhagavatam a description of Lord Shiva who's meditating under a tree. And in that tree, there's no what? Does anyone know what's absent in that tree? There's branches. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Like a palm tree, then, no branches. It's in the fourth canto. When after the Daksha Yagya, the demigods go to see Lord Shiva and they find him meditating under this tree, and in the tree there's no. It's related to what we're talking about. It has some connection. It has some connection to silence. So there's no. There's leaves. Sorry. Not a good guess. Birds! There's no birds. Here in Australia, the noise of birds are particularly noisy. <laughs> and they make sounds you don't hear birds make in any other part of the world. Unique sounding birds. So Lord Shiva has no, he sits under a tree where there's no birds so that he can find this silence. And we find that there are many, again, not only in our Vaishnava tradition or even in the Vedic tradition, even if you go in the Christian or Islamic or Jewish or Buddhist tradition, you'll find many people who take vows of silence, right? And we have the word here, monam. Let's look at the Sanskrit, monam. Um, this word is also used later on in the Bhagavad Gita in the 17th chapter, uh, text 16, in regard to the austerities of the mind, that one of the austerities of the mind is silence. And in modern society, we have a lack of silence, isn't it? We even have a lack of music. We have a proliferation of noise. Yes? Especially in the cities. You know, you go anywhere in India and it's constant honking of horns and blaring of loudspeakers. Uh, you go to any city in Western countries and you'll find sirens, right? And screeching and talking and so many things. Just this proliferation of, of noise, constant distraction. Whereas uh, those who are interested in spirituality are interested in music and in silence. But we're not talking here, interestingly enough, about technical, literal silence. We're not talking about the absence of all sound. And indeed, later on in the context of the austerity of the mind, it's not talking about silence in terms of making the mind vacant. Couldn't be. That wouldn't be consistent with the rest of the Bhagavad Gita. And Krishna wouldn't say in the 17th chapter to make the mind completely vacant and then say in the 18th chapter, man mana bhavamad bhato, think of me in your mind. Right? Which he says already in the 9th chapter. You would be repeating this instruction. Maya shaktam mana partha. Have your mind filled with me. Not only filled with me, Krishna says, but with attachment. Uh, so therefore, this word silence cannot be taken literally. Whenever we examine the instructions of the scripture, just like anyone's instructions, we have to understand them in context. Right? If there's, if there's something that somebody says or does which seems very strange, then we're probably taking it out of context. You have this experience? 
So if someone thinks, oh, here Krishna's advocating the absence of all sound, or later in the, for the mind, the absence of all thought, but that's just not possible. He said, satatam kirtayan tomam. Satatam, they're always chanting my glories. Now how can you be always chanting Krishna's glories if you're not making any sound? And how could you be always thinking of Krishna if you're not making any sound in your mind, if there's no thoughts in your mind, if your mind was vacant? So therefore, the meaning of this is understood a little differently. And again, this is a very important general point, that the statements of the Shastra, the examples of the Acharyas, always have to be understood in the context of the whole instruction of the scriptures. Right? The Christians have an expression that the devil can cite the scripture, which you probably would also use that expression. In other words, not that there's a devil, there isn't a devil. But in other words, even somebody who has ill intentions, even somebody who wants to criticize God, can quote sections from the scripture to back up their own opinions. So we should be very, very careful that we find, oh, this word says this over here, or this thing says this over here, to understand, well, how would this, how can this be understood in the general context? Everything in the scripture is absolutely true in context. Right? There's very, very few things that are absolutely true being context irrelevant. Those very few things are something like, there is a God. You know, we are a soul. <laughs> we are eternal. Those don't have any context. But other things have context. So that's one very first important lesson. And now let's look at, well, what is this context? What does this mean? Of secret things, I am silence. I mean, obviously, in a technical sense, if you want to keep something completely secret, you don't say anything, anything at all. Obviously. And all ways of keeping secrets, the best way, which is silence, is Krishna. But what it also means here is that of all the processes of understanding God, hearing, chanting, and remembering, which are the primary of the nine processes of understanding God, the best one is silence. And what is meant by the silence? So from here, we look uh, to the descriptions of how one learns. So the Vedas teach us how does one learn anything. And the first step in learning is hearing it. I'm always called shavanam, right, to hear. Now, this hearing doesn't mean just that some sound touches your eardrums. It, it means that it's, it's something where you're changing, you're thinking. You could compare it, uh, Satyananya Maharaj compares this, to you take the food and you bring it up to your mouth. So this is what we mean by hearing. I, many of us have the experience that we apparently hear, we read something in the books, or we hear something in a class, and a half an hour later we can't remember any of it. So that's not really hearing, is it? Right? If, you, if in ordinary conversation you say something, and the other person goes, uh-huh, 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 and then you say, no, what did I say? And, oh, I don't have any idea. Would you say that they heard you? No. And in fact, we use the term hearing to mean not only that someone heard the words, but that they understood the meaning, yes? We, we might say, well, well, okay, you can repeat back what I said, but you don't have any idea what I mean. So we don't count that as hearing. So hearing is some understa understanding, at least on a basic level, of what's being said. I mean, I could go to a talk on nuclear physics and I could hear it, but I wouldn't be hearing anything. 
this, I wouldn't actually be hearing anything. Or if I went to a talk in Russian, you know, again, I'd be hearing it, but I wouldn't hear anything. So with hearing, we're assuming that there's some basic, on a very, at least on a very basic level, there's some understanding. And this is one of the reasons why we try, as we can't do it all the time, but we try to have some time for questions and discussion. There's this wonderful example in the Chaitanya Charitamrita of when Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was talking with Sarvabhama Bhattacharya. And Sarvabhama Bhattacharya said, listen, I really want to serve you. Uh, you're very young and handsome. You've taken sannyas. You've renounced the world at a young age. And uh, I don't think you're going to make it. You know, I just, I just don't think you're going to make it. You're too young. You're too good looking. You're too charismatic. It's just not going to happen. And also, you took sannyas in the wrong sampradaya. He said, and this is really interesting. I've never heard anybody talk about this, and I don't know the answer to it myself. But Sarvabhama Bhattacharya, who was a, a grahasta, well, he was a kshetra sannyas, he was really a manaprasta at that time, he said, I can reinitiate him into a higher sannyas order. And that's always been because he wasn't himself a sannyasi, and how could, why would you reinitiate someone? No one's ever given me an explanation for that. Anyway, when he said that, his brother-in-law, Gopinathacharya, became very angry. How do you dare to propose such a thing? He said, well, at least I should teach him Vedanta philosophy. Because if he learns Vedanta philosophy, he'll become fixed in his vows of renunciation. So he said, all right, well, I can. And Mahaprabhu said, sure. You know, Sarabhama Bhattacharya said, I'm worried about you. He had kind of a parental relationship. He was a much older man. He said, I'm worried about you, that you're not going to make it, so I, I, I would like to teach you. And Mahaprabhu said, of course, I'm very happy to learn from you. It was also interesting that although Sarabhama Bhattacharya was teaching, he sat on a lower seat than Mahaprabhu. So that was also kind of fascinating. He thought Mahaprabhu was in a higher ashram, he should sit on a higher seat. So for a week, Sarabhama Bhattacharya was giving Lord Chaitanya instructions in the Vedanta Sutra, and Mahaprabhu, Lord Chaitanya, didn't say a word. For those whole seven days, he just sat. And at the end, Sarabhama Bhattacharya said, well, did you hear me? And Mahaprabhu said, yes, I heard you. He said, did you understand? And he said, actually, I didn't understand any of your explanations. <laughs> and Sarabhama said, well, then why didn't you ask questions? Why are you just sitting there without asking any questions? You know, of course, that Mahaprabhu he says, well, I understood the verses, I just didn't understand your explanations. <laughs> and, and it went on from there. But my point, particularly right now, is that Tadvidi Pranipastana, Pariparshana, Seva, Upadakshantiteka, Namgyanina, Tadvidakshana. One is supposed to ask questions. Right? If there's some doubt, if there's some misunderstanding, one should ask questions to clarify. Well, did you mean this? And how is this understood? And is this applied like this? And, so hearing involves not just the stage of hearing, my point is the stage of hearing doesn't mean just that sound enters your ears. It means that you understand what's entered your ears and that if there's any question, you ask the question and you clarify. You, you don't walk away confused. Okay, so at least you, you understand that there's a, you could say that there's a congruence between what the person is saying or what the scripture is saying and what you're hearing. And that by, in and of itself is often a great accomplishment. It's very difficult to have what you want to communicate and what the other person understands be the same thing, isn't this? 
in our regular lives, this is sometimes a huge challenge. You know, it can, it can take sometimes a month or more in political negotiations and mediations, etc., just so that both parties are understanding the same method. So message. So this first thing is hearing. And then the next stage is manaha. Manaha literally means mind, and it means to reflect, to take what one hears and reflect on it. And, and very often, we don't do this step at all. So often with hearing, we just do it superficially as if it was some sort of magic. You know, I just took my body and I sat in the class, or I took my eyes and I put them on the book and I heard. You know? So it's a little more than that. And then to take the next step, to really reflect. To reflect, to sort out, to categorize, to get to a deeper level of meaning, where you really you make the knowledge your own. It, it means something to you. Not only do you understand what the other person said, but you're starting to apply it to your own situation and make some sense out of it. And this is an absolutely essential step. If this isn't done, then real knowledge doesn't happen. Now, even in the secular educational world, it's understood that if this step doesn't happen, learning has not taken place. So if people are just getting information, if they're just hearing the information, if they hear the information accurately and they can repeat the information back, often on an exam, right? We give information, you hear it, you get it and then you get the right thing and you regurgitate it on an exam. We consider that learning, but that is not learning. Right? Learning has to, I have to at least make it my own. And, and one way we test this in education is that the person can repeat it back in a different form. They can repeat it in their own words, they can draw a picture of it, they can do a skit of it, they can explain it to somebody else like that. Okay, but then there's the next step, and it's this next step which is related to the silence in this verse. And this is the next step of nidhi jasana, or meditate and contemplate. Allowing the truth to manifest. So in the first two steps, I'm being very active. I'm really actively listening, I'm actively asking questions, I'm actively making sure I understand correctly, then I'm sorting it and categorizing and analyzing it. But the reason that this step is compared to silence is it's a very receiving step. It's, it's a very openness. Life is tough. When we get older, we don't complain quite as obviously. So in this stage, one is really going into deep contemplation, asking for revelation, asking for Krishna to reveal within the heart, to reveal the knowledge in the heart. I, I had some interchange with one devotee a little while ago. You know, I'm having this problem, I don't know what to do with it. And I was saying, you know, whatever we discuss, however I may try to help you, you may try to help yourself, ultimately, you have to get some confirmation from the Lord in the heart. You have to get some, what we call in the Hare Krishna movement, realization, or what's sometimes called religious literature, an epiphany. There has to be an aha. You have to see it in, in effect. You know, Jnana Deepanga Bhaskrita. Prabhupada talks about switching on the switch in the Nectar Devotion, switching on the one switch that lights up everything. Krishna says, the sun that lights up everything. So it's not just making the information or the knowledge yours in the sense that you could teach it to somebody else or you can understand it as a theoretical concept, but that 
it's a it's an experienced it's experienced knowledge and that that goes beyond simply using it you know in educational terms we talk about there's information there's understanding and there's application but you can use knowledge that you haven't fully integrated isn't it okay. so we're talking about a really full integration here where well, the, these most secret things, what are the most secret things? The most secret things are who am I? What is the nature of reality? Why is there suffering? What is the nature of God? These are all very secret things. Sutra Mani Vinayiba. They're like the thread under the pearls. Hmm? It's not visible to ordinary eyes, it's not understood, understood by ordinary means. If we really want to understand the secrets of how this creation is working, who are we, what is my place, then we have to go to this level of silence. We have to go to this level of deep, deep contemplation where we become very open to Krishna revealing to us. And this is what we call meditation. Now, of course, the devotee's meditation, again, is not void. When the devotee becomes receptive to Krishna's revelation, it doesn't mean simply that you make yourself empty like some pot and ask Krishna to fill you up. But it means rather that you fill your mind and your heart with the instructions, with the descriptions of the Lord's form, with the descriptions of the pastimes, and you allow the Lord to make them real. You allow the Lord to make them real. And we can see that this sort of contemplation is a very practical exhibition of humility that my ability to understand, my ability to find secret things on my own can only take me so far. You know, at a certain point, I, I can't go any further. It just becomes theoretical. I mean, what does it mean that God is always youthful? What does it mean that Krishna likes to play the flute? What does it mean that I'm not in this body? What does it mean that I'm doing nothing in the world, which is another fascinating lesson. Where Krishna says in the 5th and in the 13th chapter that while we're doing all these things in this world, we're actually doing nothing, we're only witnessing. Yeah, what do these things mean? And for that, we take those that philosophy, or we take that description of Lila, we take that description of form, we hold it in our mind, and we ask Krishna to make it real. We ask Krishna to, to manifest himself there. It's very much like uh, with the deity. So with the deity, uh, you can go to India, or probably these deities were made in India, and you can go to a shop and you can see somebody taking metal and carving a form out of it, yes? It's not, it's not a mystery. You can go to, you know, Jaipur, someone's carving the marble. And then at a certain point, well, so we make the form according to the Shastra. So the scripture tells us, okay, God has a form like this. There's these proportions. And the people who are expert in this, they're making according to the particular proportions. And then we ask the Lord to manifest within the deity. We have, we have a ceremony, we have mantras, where we ask the Lord to manifest within the deity. And that is required. We call that to install the deity. Sometimes deities can be installed temporarily or sometimes permanently, but it's required. So we're doing the same thing internally. Right? With our mind, all we can do is build a, a, a structure. We can, we can build a, a form. 
we can carve something out of marble or out of metal within our mind and take a concept, but we can't breathe life into it. We can't make it real. We, we can imagine, and it's fine to do so, we can imagine, oh, okay, Krishna's killing Bakasura, or Krishna's swallowing the forest fire, you know, Krishna's playing his flute, I'm a pure spirit soul, the universe is made like this. But it remains just simply a product of the mind, which is as much material as stone or metal or wood or something like that. But at this stage of silence, we invite the Lord manifest these truths to me. You come and manifest it. I am open to you. I am not thinking, I am the one who knows everything. Therefore, this stage of silence or meditation is the closest to full God realization, and therefore it is the best form of understanding those things that are secret. And then, of course, there's a final stage, and that is our response to the revelation of the Lord. What do we do with that? And although that final stage is not mentioned in these particular accounts of how we study, uh, that also is there in the end of the Bhagavad Gita, that after Krishna reveals everything to Arjuna, then he says to Arjuna, okay, now what do you want to do? What is, what is your response? So when Krishna makes everything real to us, what do we do with that? How do we act to Krishna? So this is really our process of Krishna consciousness. If we want to get to very secret things, we are all here for that, yes? Even those of you who just came here to see your friends. Uh, hopefully we're also here to find the supernatural and the transcendental. So uh, this is our process. And if we want to get closest to the secret things, then we have to go from real hearing to real contemplation to a deep meditation and an openness and an asking for us to real, for Krishna to come in and touch the supernatural and make it real for us. So we have ten minutes. Thank you very much. If anyone has questions or comments or discussions. Yes? You, you were mentioning in the class how uh, in any problem when we're asking for advice or anything, it really comes down to Krishna providing us with some realization. Yes. I'm going to repeat because I don't know if everyone heard you. You said that I was saying that when we ask for advice that it comes down to Krishna giving us realization. Yes? So how do we know whether it's Krishna giving us guidance or whether it's just our mind? Okay, this is the perpetual question. How do we know whether it's Krishna or whether it's our mind? Okay, well the first way you know it's Krishna is it's got to be within the frame of Sadhu Shastra Guru. So if you think it's Krishna telling you, you know, to go and shoot a bunch of people, or you think it's Krishna telling you to jump off the roof, that's, that can't be Krishna because that's not in the frame of Sadhu Shastra Guru. Okay? So that, that's the first thing. That prevents just madness. I mean, not that it prevents people from being mad, but... You know, if Krishna told me I should offer meat to the deep, you know, but that's not what he says in the Bhagavad Gita, so that must not be Krishna. So that's your first thing. And then, once that's there, once it's within the scope of Sadhu Shastra Guru, then you're going to turn to the ninth chapter of Bhagavad Gita, where Krishna says, Raja Vidya Raja Guyam, we're talking about Guyam, secret things, Pavitram Idamutamam, Pratyaksha Bhagavan Dharmam, Susukam Kartam Abhyayam. So Krishna's telling you there, he's giving you a little formula there. So he's telling you that, first of all, it's going to be full of Dharma. 
If Krishna's telling you something, whatever Krishna's telling you is going to be full of dharma. It's going to be full of righteousness. It's going to be full of, of, of all the wonderful ways that Krishna is telling us to act. Being equal poised, being merciful, being nonviolent, all the aspects of dharma. And it's going to be full of the ultimate dharma of I am the spirit soul and I am the servant of Krishna. So when Krishna is speaking to us, it very much feels authentic. Dharma is what's authentic, like the dharma of sugar is sweetness, the dharma of salt is saltiness, the dharma of chili is being pungent. And when Krishna speaks to you, it's, you feel that it's authentic. And you can say, well, I don't know what's authentic, but that's not true, we all know what's authentic. If I gave you one cup of freshly squeezed orange juice, and I gave you another cup of orange drinky drink, whatever they call it. You have that stuff, right? Whatever it is. It's like water with some food color and a little orange flavor and some sugar, right? I'm sure you have that here. Cordial. 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 Cordial Americans, alcohol. <laughs> so if you had if you had freshly squeezed orange juice and then you have this other stuff, this you can can you taste the difference? Anybody can taste the difference. Now if you've only had the fake stuff, you know, but as soon as you taste the real stuff, you know it's it, the, the and, and how do you describe it? I don't know how you describe it, but you know. Yes? We we all have an ability to sense something that's authentic. We can be fooled into thinking the false is the real. But we can never be fooled into thinking the real is the false. That's not going to happen. When you get the real thing, you know immediately. It's, it's something like our general material experience is something like acting in a dream. So do you know the difference between drinking water in a dream and drinking water physically? Yeah, you do. It's, it's a different experience. So that's dharma, it's authentic. Then pavitram, it's pure, it's purifying. It has a sense of, oh, about it. Yes? We use words like realization or epiphany. It has a sense of clarity about it, of, of purity, of transparency, of just, of just obviousness, apparency. You know, just apparent. Oh, yeah. Whoa. And then susu come. It fills one with happiness. Now that's a little tricky because sometimes what Krishna reveals to you at first may bring a feeling of grief. Because sometimes what Krishna reveals to you is you have a material attachment like this. You are hurting people like this. You are hurting yourself like this. You're doing this really wrong and foolish and horrible thing. And sometimes Krishna reveals that to you and at first that doesn't feel very joyful. At first, when Krishna reveals that kind of stuff, you just feel sort of shamed. You feel kind of full of shame and, and grief and, and remorse. But it leads to happiness because you, you get rid of it. It's, it's like, you know, we've all walked away from things in our life that were hurting us, and after you walk away from it, you feel so much relief. Maybe not initially, maybe there's some mourning period, huh? but then afterwards, it's like, ah. Oh, so it leads to happiness, either initially or as soon as it's dealt with. 
So these are the signs that it's coming from Krishna. You, you feel that it's authentic. It's within the boundary of Guru Sagar Shastra. It has this authenticity about it that is very prajekcha. Um, you can experience it. Like Shila Prabhupada said, you don't need to ask someone else whether or not you've eaten enough. I mean, unless you have some sort of disease. You know, an ordinary, healthy person doesn't need to ask, did I eat enough? Am I full? You know, so in the same way, you don't really need to ask somebody, is this Krishna? You immediately know this is authentic, it's purifying, and it brings me to happiness, and it's directly Krishna. Is that all right? Yeah. Thank you. Excellent question. Anybody else? Did you really have a question? No? Okay, we can start the kirtan early then. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah.